everybody. Welcome to Maximum Libertarian. I am Brian. And it's been a while since we've actually been together for a podcast, isn't it? Well, before I get started with today's podcast, I'm asking you to please all, uh, whatever podcast platform that you're listening to, it might be Apple Podcast or Google Play or whatever, please give us a five-star review and uh, help us out. Push us up amongst all those podcasts out there that we all know and love. So that would really help us. Then what I would like you to do is go over to YouTube, go over to Rumble, and subscribe to the channel. Click the notification bell, like and share all the videos on uh, Maximum Libertarian. And then finally... Go over to Twitter, and you can see all the news articles that we talk about at We Are Max Lib. So, there you go, my friends. Well, today's podcast is a special one. Every year, Dr. James Lark comes to the Roanoke Valley Libertarian Meeting and speaks with the fellow Libertarians. And um, this year, it was pretty good because... The topic is, what if Dr. Lark could get in the time machine and go back 20, 30, 40 years ago and tell the young Mr. Lark what the future is like when, it, uh, when, it, when we're talking about the Libertarian Party. It's fun. It was uh, interesting. And the reason I gave him the topic like that really quick is because I think everyone should go back and do, you know, just look back on your life. What could have I done better? What can I do? Uh, what should I stay away from? So that way the future will be a lot better. You know what I'm saying? All right. So uh, go grab your water, your hot coffee, hot tea, juice, or you know, adult beverage, put your feet up, and uh, let's all listen to the soothing sounds of Dr. James Lark at the Roanoke Valley Libertarian meeting. Here we go. All yes, right, so today we're joined here today with uh, by Dr. Jim Lark. He uh, is former national chair, former state chair, treasurer. He ran the Students for Liberty. Um, he's done multitude of things here in DLP and um, this is his annual where he comes down and speaks to the Vernon Valley Libertarian. So um, today's topic is going to be, I sent him a message, I said what would you do if you could go back 20 years or so and tell yourself because I think about it, I started here in 2009 but 2010 I got real active and then you start you know, you need to reflect on yourself and say, like, what have I done wrong? What have I done right? You know, and so I just asked, what would he have done differently? So there we go. Dr. Lark, floor is yours. Well, first of all, uh, allow me to thank you, Brian, for the invitation. It has become actually a tradition for me to address the August meeting of the Army. I think I've been doing this for at least 10 years now. 
Um, I've been coming down to the RVL or RV, whatever it used to be called, RVLP meetings since at least 2001 when I was national chair. But uh, it, August has become my month yes. here. And I, I should tell you, it's a great pleasure and a great honor to be here. I, I see a lot of old friends with whom I <laughs> go back a long ways, and it's great to see you all again. Um, so thank you for allowing me the honor of, of coming down here and, and, and talking. Um, I always figure that you, you ran out of good speakers, so you, you, you basically said, okay, Jim, we've run out of good speakers, why don't you do it? Okay. Um, Brian's, uh, Brian's message to me, uh, it was something that uh, I, I said, okay, there are a lot of things I could, I could talk about this evening. Basically, if I were to go back, in, in this case, it would be closer to, uh, well, 40 years rather than 20. So um, I, I've been around in the liberty movement for, for a while now. And so let me start off by, since probably you haven't seen Jim Lark the movie, let me let me provide you with a little bit of background about my about myself. Um, if I, as Dr. Lark, were to go back to the late 70s, early 80s to talk to Mr. Lark, what would I say? So it might be useful for you to have an idea of what Mr. Lark was like many years ago and what Dr. Lark is like uh, sort of now. Um, I'm a, I'm I'm a Virginia hillbilly by both birth and conviction. I'm from Pulaski, Virginia born and raised, Virginia Tech alumnus, third generation Virginia Tech alumnus, although my UVA people say, I, I'm a professor at the University of Virginia, I didn't want to have to work for a living, so I became a university professor. My UVA people said, third generation Virginia Tech, that's quite a record of mediocrity, and I have several responses that are not repeatable in polite company, I hasten to add. Um, I have never been what one would call a political person. If you were to talk to my high school chums, and say Jim Lark would grow up to be the chair of the third largest political party in the United States, they wouldn't have laughed at you, but they would have thought that was odd because I was not interested in politics. Yes, I followed what was going on. Uh, my parents my parents voted. They were not political people either, by the way. I mean, yes, they were civic-minded. They voted. They kept up with the issues, but they were not political people. Um, frankly, I hate politics. I, I, I have never liked politics. I don't like it as a spectator sport. I don't follow it because of the horse race ad, you know, aspect. I'm involved in politics. I became involved in politics because I'm hopelessly bourgeois. I'm a creature of duty. And I believe very strongly in certain moral principles regarding the relationship between the individual and the collective. And I can't ask other people to go out and defend my rights, to defend my liberty, if I'm not willing to do it. I have to get up on the firing line with, with my colleagues. So even though I hate politics, have always hated politics, I got involved. Um, basically, I, very, very quickly, the first time I heard someone really describing the libertarian political wing of the liberty movement was the day before the 1976 presidential election, when my professor of electricity and magnetism at Virginia Tech decided we wouldn't talk about electricity and magnetism, we talk about the proper relationship between the individual and the state. It turned out, by the way, that year, Roger McBride, a Virginian, was the Libertarian Party presidential candidate. And when I, when I heard this discussion of the Libertarian Party and its positions, my initial reaction was, well, you know, I kind of like this idea about not hitting my neighbors over the head with a big stick if they don't live their lives my way. I thought that was actually a rather becoming sentiment. But I had very real questions. Would a libertarian society be a good society? 
Because I want to live not just in a just society, but a good society. I don't want to see people who, through no fault of their own, you know, are, are in distress. I don't want to see them hurt. I don't want to see some poor slob who's worked all his life not be able to get health care. I don't want to see some little old lady who, she's, you know, her, her husband's died, she can't go back in the labor market. You know, I don't want to see her tossed out on the street. I want to see a society where people help their neighbors because it's the right thing to do, not because somebody's pointing a gun at them. And I think, if, I think if you want a better society, you need to have better people. So I got involved, I started, I started thinking, you know, I guess I really need to be involved in various ways to promote my, my ideas, to, sh to, again, to work with my colleagues to try to move us toward a society of individual liberty coupled with personal responsibility. I should also note, uh, when I first heard this libertarian perspective, as I said, I have these questions about would a libertarian society be a good society? And one of the things that was particularly amusing now um, is I had real questions about if we ended drug prohibition, would we have a society of drug-crazed fiends running around and committing mayhem? Now, I'm a teetotaler with respect to illegal drugs. Not because they're illegal, it's just not my taste. My taste in drugs principally is beer. Judiciously applied, usually again by a 55-gallon drum. I also will have wine, occasionally I'll have uh, liquor, um, I also drink lots of iced tea, which in certain parts of the world would be considered drugs. <laughs> lots of caffeine. Um, I have used Tylenol and other things like that. I'm a teetotaler with respect to illegal drugs. But I've come to believe now that if you really want to deal with the problems of drug abuse, the worst possible thing you could do is to make the drugs illegal for a wide variety of reasons. So more and more as I started thinking about these issues, I began to realize that not only would a libertarian society accord with my moral values, it would also be prudentially better with respect to darn near every aspect. At the very least, it would be at least as good as what we now have or are likely to have in, under any competing arrangement. So more and more I began to say, you know, I really have to be out there trying to promote these ideas. The first place where I really became an activist was I joined the Libertarian Party in 1983. Well, in my neck of the woods, the environs around Pulaski, Pulaski County, Montgomery County, and the like, there was really nothing going on. I became a visiting scholar, visiting schmuck, at the Center for Research and Government Policy and Business at the University of Rochester in the business school. Um, but <laughs> it's, a, it's a small world. Milton Friedman was actually the first person who really got me thinking about economics. It was actually Uncle Milty who made me aware that I could become the Earhart Visiting Foundation Fellow at the University of Rochester. Well, when I got to Rochester, New York, there were already very active libertarian groups, both uh, libertarian party groups and libertarian philosophical groups that were trying to grow, basically grow interest in the philosophy. And because I couldn't outrun the impressment gang, I got, out, I got elected to various positions. Well, Jim just is not that fast. Let's, 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 let's lasso him and get him to be involved in these things. And after being at Rochester, I then went to uh, Evanston, Illinois for, uh, I was at Northwestern as sort of a visiting schmuck for a while, got involved with the libertarians in, in, um, in, in the greater Chicago area. That's where I met these lovely people. And when I decided to come back to work on my doctorate at the University of Virginia, I said I really need to get a, a libertarian student group going. And I'm pleased to say that Students for Individual Liberty, the group I founded, 
Evidently, we are now the longest running continuously active libertarian student group in American history. We're not, the, we're not the longest running in world history. Evidently, there is a Belgian libertarian group, or at least classical liberal group, that goes back to the 1930s. And they managed to avoid being wiped out by the Nazis, which I think is a pretty impressive accomplishment. So I, I've been involved as an activist, at first mostly in the ideas, because there really just wasn't that much opportunity for political activism. And more and more, though, I saw the Libertarian Party as a way of getting the ideas out there to people. Now, I, I'm one of those libertarians uh, who believes that you can actually have a Libertarian Party that is educational and oriented toward electing candidates. I don't see it as an either-or proposition. A lot of people seem to. So, as I, as I got older and older, I became more and more involved. Frankly, I, I, it's very flattering. People evidently got the idea that I might be a good person to be on the Libertarian National Committee, so I got elected to that. Uh, I served my first term. I was elected in 1998. Uh, a bunch of people saw that there were no good candidates for the national chair, so they, they basically said, Jim, please, would you run for national chair? And again, being hopelessly bourgeois, I said, all right, I'll do it. And, but I was, what I was going to do is, if I got elected as national chair, I would do the best job I could. My job was to make the next chair the most successful we'd ever had because I would help lay the foundations for that explosion. And then I was going to get the hell out of Dodge and let some other fool, good libertarian, do the job. Uh, I served my term as national chair. I'm pleased to say most people seem to feel that I did a good job. At least I didn't destroy the party, but that's a good thing. Um, I, was, I, I went off the LNC for a term and then came back on as a regional rep. Um, I like to think that I, I actually did a pretty good job. I will point out in a rather pompous fashion, uh, that I'm rather proud of this actually, that the, the, the Libertarian Party set up three national awards for, for activism, for work in the Libertarian Party in 1996. The Adams Award for activism, the, the Payne Award for, for uh, communication, and the Jefferson Award for lifetime achievement. There are only two people who have won at least two of the awards. One of them is Jim Lark, the other is Harry Brown. And there's only one who's won all three awards, and that's Jim Lark. So I, I like to think I've done okay on this political stuff. Um, looking back on my many years, uh, it's not so much that I've learned a lot of new lessons. A lot of the things that I actually would, would be aware of when I was a much younger man I would have known about them, but I probably didn't realize the importance of certain aspects. Now, over the 40 years or so, actually more than 40 years, that I've been involved in the Liberty Movement, certain things have now basically been hammered home so that I realize what their importance is. So allow me to share with you some of the things that I think might be helpful to you. The first thing I'm going to mention, and this is something, I'll, I'll admit, this is probably not something people want to hear, but I'll mention it. I was I, I basically took a punch in the gut many years ago when I realized, when I saw with my own eyes, that there are people in the liberty movement in general, in the Libertarian Party in particular, who are frankly dishonest bastards. I mean, I, it, it, I, I'm very much the proper young man from Kilaski, Virginia. I'm everything my mommy and daddy thought I was. That's supposed to be fun. It was a real shock to me to find out that there are people, including prominent people in the movement, who are frankly dishonest scum. 
I actually got libeled when I was running for national chair. Somebody, well, I'll mention names, Jacob Hornberg. He libeled me. If he'd walked into my office five minutes after he sent his libelous message, I would have killed him. I was that angry. And this was somebody I considered a good friend, someone who had done a lot for my student group. And he, for political reasons, libeled me. There are other libertarians, fairly prominent ones, who are dishonest as hell. And I had this silly notion that if you adopt the libertarian perspective, you will set a fairly high standard in terms of the way you will treat other people. At the very least, you will treat them with honesty and integrity. And I found out that that's not true. So I mentioned this so that if nothing else, you might be inclined to look around so that you don't get a knife in the back. They're, the, they're, the most, they're pretty painful. I'll also note, incidentally, as a partisan of liberty, I realize when I'm charging up that hill, I might take one right between the horns. It's those bullets in the back that make you a little less likely to charge up that hill. So just be aware that in a political organization, some people are political in the most pejorative sense of the term. It's a small number, I'm pleased to say, or at least as far as I can tell, it's a small number. But if you take if you take a thousand gallons of delicious, pure spring mountain water and you add an ounce of sewage, now you have a thousand gallons plus an ounce of sewage. So understand that a very small number of people can basically cause real problems. And I apologize for starting off on what may seem like a very negative note, but I think that was arguably the biggest lesson that if I were to get in the time machine and go back, I would have said, Jim, Mr. Lark, you're, you're really naive. You will find that in a political organization there are people who will treat you like poop if you get in their way. So just be aware of that. The next lesson, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, can I ask you a question? Please. Um, so recently I was watching a podcast with uh, Angela Carl, mm -hmm. and she had referred to like uh, the recent Libertarian Party as being taken over by uh, throughout the like late 90s and early 2000s. And you had mentioned that, you know, you would think if somebody's applying Libertarian principles, they would be friendlier and more open. Do you have a couple of hours? We can, let, let, let me let me let me because you actually raise you actually raise a question that I would like to address. Can can we come back to that? Is is it all right? I'd like I'd like to come back to that because my, it's it's not a short answer, and there's some other things that I I'd look, would like to get out my, my my little catchphrases, and then we can come back. Make sure that I don't get out the door before I address your question, because it's a question I would like to address. Okay. Um, the next point that 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 I would like to emphasize, and this this is one that actually has implications both for strategy and tactics, is my friend Steve Reed. Uh, you, I don't know if you remember Steve. I, I, I know Charles would. Steve Reed was a libertarian activist in the greater Chicago area. He was one of the libertarian forum at Northwestern. He was part of Students for a Libertarian Society in the early 80s. Great guy. He passed away a few years ago. S Steve 
had a phrase that is remarkably simple but extremely important, and that is the word libertarian is an adjective as well as a noun. Now, what's the implication of this? I, I suspect everyone in this room is libertarian now in the sense that you understand the ideas, you actually embrace the libertarian philosophy, you probably, you probably refer to yourself as a libertarian. You're a self-identified libertarian. But there are many, 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 many more people who are not self-identified libertarians, but their general way of looking at things is very much in accordance with what I would refer to as a libertarian perspective. And we, we, have, we who are self-identified libertarians, we don't have to get everybody to become a self-identified libertarian. You don't have to have a mass wave of conversion come to Jesus, brother. You don't have to have all that. Although it's nice to have more and more people who identify. We can reach people who are libertarian in disposition. And, you know, there's the old joke, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. People don't have to become whole hog libertarians to embrace a very large part of our philosophy. At the very least, they may not be hostile to our general perspective, some of our issues. So we need to understand that, yes, we want to find and we want to create more self-identified libertarians. But we don't have to get everybody to come over. There are plenty of people who are, uh, in some cases, maybe it's a, just a couple of issues, but they're very important issues to them. There are other people who are broadly libertarian adjective. And we need to be finding ways to help them become increasingly more libertarian. Steve Dosbach, who's a former national chair of the party, he was the executive director when I was national chair. Steve has this interesting way of putting things. He said, when you add a cucumber to brine, the brine does not become more cucumberish. The cucumber becomes a pickle. And I'm a pickle guy. I mean, I could eat pickles all day long and have. We need to be, <laughs> we are the brine that helps people of libertarian disposition become more libertarian. The next, ooh, that looks good. The next point that I will mention. By the way, I'm, I'm going over these in, I'm not, I'm not putting these in any particular order of importance. We need to understand, and I, I would have told Mr. Lark, understand how much good you can do by simply being a good face for liberty, by clearing away misconceptions. I suspect most, if not all of you, have been in a situation where you're trying to explain libertarian ideas or libertarian policy positions to people, and you get a, you get a very negative reaction. Oh, you libertarians, you don't like the poor, you don't you hate the poor, you hate the environment, you don't give a damn about anyone else. If all you do by virtue of your activity, your activism, your advocacy, is you clear away misconceptions, you help get rid of bad caricatures, look how far you've moved the ball down the field. If all you do is get people to the point where they say, wait a minute, I disagree with those libertarians perhaps on policy issues, but it's not because they're evil people, it's not because they want to, they want to hurt others, they just have a different way of looking at things. Look how much benefit, look how much progress you've made. 
Because now, if nothing else, now when conversations take place, they take place over substantive issues of substantive disagreements. You don't waste time dealing with things that aren't true. And I find, by the way, I, if, if you give people an uncaricatured view of what we're talking about, a very large fraction of humanity is going to agree with a very large fraction of what we're talking about. It's kind of hard to come out and say, nah, this freedom shit, excuse my language, this freedom shit, I don't really care about that. Actually, I'm perfectly happy to dominate you. I'm perfectly happy to take your money in taxes and give it to me or to give it to my friends. If for no other reason that people probably don't want to be shot, they're probably not going to come out and say that. And most people, I think, are actually very sympathetic to a large part of the classical liberal or libertarian perspective. So with your advocacy, understand that you might not create the next Brian Heiner, the next great exemplar of libertarian ideas. If all you do is clear away misconceptions, you have made tremendous progress. And in some cases, you may, not, you may not know this. Now, I'm particularly keen to make this point because many student activists, and I, I mean, I, my niche in the, in the liberty movement and the Libertarian Party in particular has been campus organizing. I've been doing campus organizing for over 35 years. I actually, I travel around the world doing this. I talk to libertarians around the world about how to build campus organizations and the like. One of the biggest problems we face with young libertarian activists is that in many cases, they go, they go to college, they're talking, they have this tremendous enthusiasm to share libertarian ideas. And they should have enthusiasm because our ideas are truly beautiful ideas. Let's realize our ideas, frankly, are ideas of love because we're willing to let people live their lives their way as long as they don't violate the rights of others. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a truly beautiful vision. We may dislike how people choose to live their lives, but we'll let them live their lives their way as long as they don't violate the like rights of their neighbors. That's a truly beautiful vision. It is a vision of love. And like the old Monty Python line, I'm not only proud about it, I'm smug about it. So, being a huge Monty Python, I, just, I, I had to get that in. Young activists have this enthusiasm to go out and share the ideas. Well, on college campuses, in many cases, for the first time in their lives, they run into articulate arguments against a libertarian perspective. And Reasonable people can disagree with us. There are plenty of reasonable questions that one can have about how would a libertarian society operate. I had those questions. And it took me the better part of five years looking at evidence before I came to the conclusion, as I said, that I think a libertarian society would be at least as good on prudential grounds as any other arrangement we're likely to have. But it took me a while thinking those things through. Well, a lot of young activists they are so enthusiastic, they want to help their neighbors, their friends and neighbors become card-carrying libertarian ninjas to go out. And in many cases, it's quite, it's quite a blow to them when not only are they not converting people, they're, they're actually being criticized. One of the things I try to do, one of the things we should do, 
is to say, look, first of all, there are people who are going to have articulate arguments about the, against the libertarian perspective. You need to know what they are. And you, I think we can address them, but reasonable people will disagree with us. And they're not bad people, they're not evil people, they're not stupid people. They Sometimes people will just disagree. But if all you do, by virtue of your advocacy, if you treat people with courtesy and respect, if you hold yourself to the highest standard of intellectual integrity, by and large, I think you will find that people, first of all, will say, wait a minute, I may disagree with this person, but this, this person's okay. And a very large part of what we have to do, we're still sufficiently exotic as a species, libertarianism that is, that we need to let people know what we're all about. We need to give them that uncaricatured viewpoint. And so that lesson has really been hammered home over my, my 40 years of activism. So, you know, always keep in mind, many, you know, you can do an enormous amount of good even if you don't convert people. If you just make sure that people understand what we're about, you have made tremendous progress. Because I think on a fair, on a, in a fair fight, I think we win. Because frankly, our ideas are better. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so you spoke briefly about how some young libertarians, particularly on college campuses, have run into the issue of enthusiasm over being a libertarian. And I actually had a question about principle. Right? So when introducing libertarian ideas to people who are not familiar with the liberty and they might disagree with you. Do you think it's better to compromise or take a more moderate position, or should you stand by principle? That's uh, I, I, well. I think first of all, I think first of all, you've got to know what your own principles are. That's that's an important part. I think you always have to stand on principle. However, my way of dealing with people is actually not so much to engage in sort of the classic proselytizing. I'm very English, don't you know? I like to ask questions. What I like to do is to, if some, I actually like for the other people to do the talking. I like for them to explain their position to me. And so hopefully I can ask in a judicious manner, I can ask them questions. Say, That's a very interesting perspective. Can you, can you explain that to me? I like to let them do the talking and then hopefully, if I'm good at what I do, I can actually try to get them to understand my perspective. I think it's also very important to establish yourself as someone who shares interests. I still do a lot of sitting at information tables and talking to people. You know, first, the first thing I try to do, my, my short-term goal whenever I'm doing outreach is not to get people to buy my ideological revolution. It would be great if they did, but that's not my short-term goal. My short-term goal is for them to go away and say, you know, those guys, I liked talking to them. And I'd like to talk to, I don't care what their politics are. I actually, these are nice people. I enjoy talking to them. I'd like to talk to them again. If I see somebody come up, for example, a, a lot of students now I see at the University of Virginia are wearing uh, football jerseys, soccer jerseys of various teams. Well, I, I was a footballer in my younger days. And like a lot of men my age, I, better, you know, the older I get, the better I used to be. So if I see somebody wearing a Manchester United jersey, I'll say, oh, Manchester United, I'm a Liverpool fan. Well, I don't do that. I've been tempted to do that. You know, it's like uh, I don't do that, but I, I I resist the temptation. But I try I try to get people. I try to have people identify me as part of their tribe. Whether it's music, whether it's sports, 
food, beer, anything. Because once people identify you as being part of their tribe, they're likely to look at you as a human being, not as some sort of alien species. And I want people to go away, if they come to our table, I mean, this is not, by the way, to soft-pedal differences. I mean, I don't, I, I don't basically, I, I don't pull in my horns, I don't compromise. But what I try to do is I'm tr always looking for ways to, to come to agreement. If somebody says, Lark, USOB, you know, maybe we agree on 5%. Of it. Okay, let's work together on the 5%. There's plenty of time for arguing about other things. I want to try to find ways where people can come to yes as opposed to no. And I want people to go away thinking, you know, those libertarians, you know, they're, they're pretty good people. And the world's not going to go to hell if they happen to be in positions of responsibility. Which brings me to another point related to the others. I usually, when, I'm, when, I'm, when I teach at UVA, and by the way, being a university professor beats working for a living. When I teach at the university, I rarely use PowerPoint. I still work in chalk. Now, the classes I teach are mostly mathematical, but I still work in chalk. There are a couple of reasons for this. One is a pacing issue. I think actually students like the pacing because it's easier for them to make notes. It's so easy when you're doing PowerPoint to just flip those, those slides. Also, there's the comedic aspect. For those of you old enough to remember the, the Peanuts character, Pigpen, who always had the cloud, Professor Lark looks like Pigpen because there's this cloud of chalk dust over it. I do use PowerPoint, though, when, I, when I'm giving lectures, for example, to Students for Liberty, their, their conferences. And regardless of what I'm talking about in my, my talks to Students for Liberty or, or Young Americans for Liberty, whatever, I always put two boilerplate slides in my presentation. Two essential points for advocates for liberty. The first, we have to set the highest standards of intellectual integrity. We have to apply the same withering scrutiny to our ideas that we apply to the ideas of those with whom we think we disagree. Intellectual sloppiness is no more appealing when it comes from our friends than when it comes from those with whom we think we disagree. And it's, we can't ask people to take us seriously if we don't take our own ideas seriously and if we don't take their ideas seriously. So we have to set the highest standards of integrity. The second point, remarkably simple, as is the first, be nice to people. Most people, in my opinion, are pretty decent. They're not angelic, they're not heroic, but they're pretty decent. If you, if you treat people nicely, overwhelmingly I found that people will at least listen to you. And that's really all we can expect. Because again, sometimes reasonable people are not going to agree with Maybe they weight things differently, maybe they evaluate the data differently. But the very least, if we treat people the right way, we will, we, I think, will be the exemplar at whom people say, well, wait a minute, those libertarians, when they have a discussion, they do it the right way. One of the things, frankly, that sickens me is the incredibly low level of quality of political discussion. It's so much easier to say, you know, your argument, you're just a piece of shit. Excuse me. By and large, I don't find that's a particularly compelling argument. You know, it doesn't usually convince people. If I say, you know, you're just, you're just a fucking moron. Well, you might be, a, but maybe that's not really going to get people to listen to you or to think about you. 
set the highest standards of integrity and be nice to people. Again, I, I already knew that when I was a much younger activist, but the more I've been involved in seeing how ideas actually progress, political ideas progress, the more I see the power of that. We have to be people of surpassing integrity. If we want other people to take us seriously, we, ha we have to do it better and cleaner than the other guys. And incidentally, I think that we, I think when you see libertarian candidates in debates, it actually has a ratchet up effect because our candidates look so much better because they actually look like adults. One of my, one of my great, great, great frustrations concerning libertarian presidential campaigns was that in 2000, we couldn't get Harry Brown on stage with Vice President Gore and Governor Bush. It's like, one of these people is not like the other two. One of these people looks presidential. He looks like he actually belongs in the White House. He actually looks like he doesn't have his head completely stuffed up his tailpipe. That's Harry Brown, in case you were wondering. Tweedledum and Tweedledumer, I think, would have looked really bad compared to a person of integrity who behaves well toward others. And people notice the contrast. So, again, always, always hold yourself to the highest standards. By the way, it, I should note, there are times over a short term, being a mendacious, dishonest bastard can have short-term benefits. But I think over the long haul, it catches up with you. So if we set the highest standards of integrity and we treat people the right way, if nothing else, I think people will be much more inclined to pay attention to us. It's so much easier to dismiss people who are not honest or people of integrity or people who are just not very nice. Don't make it easy for people to dismiss you like Another point that I would say, and again, this is something I, I realized somewhat when I was a much younger man. Now, as I've studied more economics, as I've learned more economics, it's become, it's, it's really become enforced. Understand just how hard our job is. One of the things that's somewhat frustrating, particularly in the Libertarian Party, is that in many cases, our, our fellows in the Libertarian Party don't give us the credit we deserve for how much good work we've actually done. We are playing in a rigged game. We are in a situation where we're going against at least 125 years of the intellectual tide going in the wrong direction. Also, we are constantly in a situation where the people who are arguing in favor of more government, more government benefits, it's easy for them to point to the benefits and to the beneficiaries. We, and by the way, this is not a libertarian point, this is just a point of good economics. When we point out the problems with government, those problems may be vastly greater, but it's harder to show the victims, it's harder to show the costs. Let me give you an example. One of my hobby horses for many years is the police power of the Food and Drug Administration to regulate what you put in your body for your health, safety, and comfort. The FDA 
has probably killed more people by virtue of keeping substances off the market than it has saved by virtue of keeping dangerous substances off the market. How do you prove that? You can't. You, you can try to estimate it. And there are ways that you might be able to put at least lower bounds on the death toll of the FDA. But it's very, very hard to make these comparisons. And also, it's, it's this constant business of the benefits are seen, the costs in many cases are unseen. You know, the broken, you've probably heard of the broken window fallacy. Well, you know, a hurricane blows through and breaks all the windows, knocks down. Look at how much opportunity for employment. This is a wealth-creating situation. Now, frankly, I think people like that should be taken out and killed and their organs should be harvested. That didn't go over the wire. I hope I hope. Uh, bleep that out. That was facetious, by the way. Somewhat facetious. Uh, we are dealing, in many cases, with people who don't have any clue about decent economic analysis. Let me, brief digression, because I teach, I teach a several courses at the university that basically try to help engineers learn economics. You can be a brilliant scientist and know nothing about economics, and let me assure you there are many brilliant scientists who know nothing about economics. You can't be a good engineer and not understand economics. One of the things that's very, very hard to do is to get people to understand the notion of trade-offs. If, if your economics education, if, if the sole point of your, or rather the sole knowledge of economics for you is you understand the time value of money, you understand opportunity cost, you understand trade-offs, you know about 90%, maybe more, of what you need to know about economics. If you, know the, if you understand those principles, that Tom Sowell had this wonderful line. He said, in, in, in most cases in life, we don't have solutions to problems, we have trade-offs. If you understand that there are trade-offs, if you, well, we understand this, many people don't. I emphasize this point because we have a remarkably tough job. And I think if you look at the progress the liberty movement has made, over the last, say, 80 years. We have made tremendous progress, particularly on the intellectual battlefield. More and more, the libertarian idea, or let me, let me rephrase, I shouldn't call it the libertarian, because a lot of these ideas have nothing to do with being a libertarian. The idea, for example, that minimum wage laws may hurt the very people they're putatively intended to help, that's not a libertarian idea. That's just good economics. The idea that the war on drugs may have killed vastly more people than it has saved probably hadn't saved anybody. That has nothing to do with being a libertarian. That's just good social science. The idea that the FDA has probably killed more people than it saved. That's just, again, a matter of science. You don't have to be a libertarian to buy into these things. We're still trying, though, to get people to understand these things. So we're, we're basically, we've always been fighting an uphill battle. Even though our ideas, our basic moral ideas are, are, are good, I think they're great. We still have to overcome, frankly, a lot of our friends and neighbors who really are not in a position to make proper comparisons. And if you think about, by the way, what, what is the real stock in trade of most contemporary politicians, Democrats, Republicans? They get you to put blinders on. They tell you what the problem is, they tell you what the solution is. If we do a good job of helping people so that they never put the blinders on, so that they're actually comparing apples to, to apples to apples and not apples to oranges or apples to rocks. 
I think we're going to be much more, much more effective because again, I think liberty will be the preferential option. So I could go on all night, but rather than do that, I th I, what I'd like to do is stop now. I want to take your question, the one you had earlier. L let me see if there are any other questions or comments, and then I want to get back to this gentleman's point. Yes, sir. The question is, how do the engineers like the class? Most of them love it. I think most of my students do seem to like me. I guess it's by virtue of my charm, sparkling personality, and ruggedly handsome good looks. Um, not everybody, not everybody likes it because I happen to be one of those old-fashioned professors who actually expects my students to work. Now, engineers—that's not necessarily a bad thing. Not everybody likes that. Actually, let, let me let me riff off the point. I think it's completely improper for a professor to proselytize for his politics in, in, in classes. I do not discuss my politics in class. I, I don't discuss it in the faculty room either, although everybody knows who I am. Um, I'll also tell you, by the way, those of you, some of you know me, know me for a long time. Uh, the problems I ran into at the University of Virginia when I was national chair, the problems I ran into and the knock-on effects, I figure it probably cost me somewhere between six hundred and seven hundred thousand dollars Positions I did not get, promotions I did not get, at least in a timely manner. Uh, I was told, by the way, just digression, I was told that I got on the poop list of my department chair and the dean of the engineering school, supposedly for completely different political directions. My department chair at the time could be called a John Kerry Democrat who didn't believe private citizens should have handguns. Supposedly the dean of the engineering school was some sort of right-wing guy. Uh, I don't know because I never talked politics with him. This was something that came to me back channel. So, but I, I had real problems with my faculty point. I'm just now getting to the point where I should have been about 15 years ago. But a lot of people, they fight for liberty and they end up getting shot. I, I so far have not been shot. I don't know if I've been shot at, but I have not been shot. So, um, I was saying, I, I don't believe in proselytizing. However, I like to flatter myself the conceit that I actually do a pretty good job of helping move the liberty movement forward, not by telling students what to think, but by getting them to think. I have the honor of teaching a lot of statistics classes. And in fact, I've become Mr. Statistics in the engineering school, which shows you that God has a sense of humor because the first statistics class with which I had any association ever was one I was teaching in the McIntyre School of Commerce. They figured, well, Jim can read. He can stay at least a day ahead of his students. So we'll get him to teach it. Well, now I know enough statistics to be dangerous. If you get people to the point where they start asking the right questions. For example, I teach, I, I teach a class, uh, it's, it's called Financial Aspects of Engineering, where basically engineering students have to know something about economics and finance. So I get them to ask the right question. When, when, when people are saying, well, you know, this is going to cost so much, this, this government project is going to cost so much, well, what discount factor are you using? Is that a present value calculation? You're just simply aggregating the payments? Um, you know, <laughs> questions, you know, little things like that. So that people know how to do time value of money calculations. Um, I also like, to, I also like to, to show them a very simple example of the notion of comparative advantage. You know, you can have a situation where, you know, this, this lovely lab, he can do everything better than I can do. 
because he's just an incredibly talented fellow, I'm a, I'm, I'm a schmuck. But it still may be in his best interest to trade with me, even if he is better at everything than I am because of comparative advantage. So, you know, students say, wow, that's interesting. I didn't understand that. They, I also teach them about the difference between low cost and low wage, and the difference between cost and price. So, I like to flatter myself in the seat that I actually do a decent job of helping my students understand important points. I'm not pushing them in a particular direction. I want them to be able to do good analysis. Again, I have this, I have this notion, if we, get a, if we get a fair fight, if people are comparing apples to apples and not apples to oranges or apples to rocks, liberty will be the preferential option. So if we help people understand how to make the comparisons, we don't have to tell them what to think. I think most of them will come to the right conclusions. So I like to think I'm doing a good job with my students. Because when they leave my class, by and large, they can at least make good comparisons in matters of at least certain areas of economics and finance. Further questions or comments? Then. Before we get to that question, I had a smaller question. Sure. Uh, so you had mentioned uh, we don't have to make libertarians. We have to make people. Uh, you had mentioned earlier, and I'm paraphrasing, we don't have to make libertarians. We have to make people libertarians. We can, we, we we can help them move in that direction. We should promote them towards libertarian ideals, but they don't have that big What was there? There was a wonderful. Well, there, there are a couple of things. Hypocrisy is the is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. Hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. Um, there are also some people who I, I'm trying to. There, there was a classic line about people who look like or they try to pretend libertarian. There's a great line, by the way, that was attributed to David Berglund, libertarian presidential candidate, my predecessor as national chair. Evidently, he didn't say it, but it's a great line. Supposedly, some politician comes up to him and says, Mr. Berglund, in my heart, I'm really a libertarian. And the response was, when it gets down to your balls, let me know. <laughs> I thought that was a pretty good line. Um, and supposedly, David didn't say that, but, but somehow the story got that. Um, there are a lot of people who, they try to use libertarian rhetoric. Why? Because libertarian ideas do resonate with many people on a lot of issues. And so, you know, it's, it's it, it should not be surprising that we see people try to portray themselves as libertarians when they think it'll help them. So well, you don't see a lot of substance in the populist Republican movement right now? They actually, some of them are actually, they may actually have some beneficial effects because sort of the populist republic, in many cases, their arguments actually are against overly large government, at least as long as they're not running the overly large government. If they're in charge of the overly large government, they seem to be a little less inclined to be upset. But I think that there can be a useless, because in many cases, these people are, by virtue of their advocacy, they are actually getting people to question long-held shibboleths, and I think that that's beneficial. I will also point out, now, I am not a fan of Donald Trump. 
I think if he and I were in the same room, I would really dislike him because he strikes me as representing, as a, as a, as a person, many of things I really dislike. Braggadocio, I mean, the, the man, I don't know how he gets his ego in through the door. Um, I have an ego, but it's, 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 it's been cut down to size. Um, I mean, he just seems like, frankly, a nasty person. He's, he was horribly wrong and will probably remain horribly wrong on some very important issues. On the other hand, maybe by accident, he was right on some issues, and frankly, some uh, you know some of the, the Supreme Court decisions we've seen, if Hillary Clinton had been elected, the people she would have appointed to the Supreme Court would have rendered what I think would have been m very bad decisions on some things that are important to me. By the way, one of the, one of the issues that, that's important to me, I will confess, I take what one might consider a rather robust I take what one might call a rather robust interpretation of the right to keep and bear arms. That is one of the issues that causes my need to jerk violently. Uh, if you have, if you never heard, by the way, someone once asked David Bose of the Cato Institute, should private citizens have the right to have nuclear weapons? And his response was, depends upon how tough your neighborhood is. I thought that was a good one. I, I, I really like that. Um, so I think that you know recent Supreme Court decisions on right to keep and bear arms issues, the New York case, um, I was reasonably happy with that. I don't know that I would necessarily agree with all of the opinions that were written, but and this is one of those cases where the outcome I thought was pretty good. So I actually think that Mr. Trump's election, it had its good aspects, it had its bad aspects. It's sort of like every president who's been elected since I've been around. You know, it, by accident in some cases, the previous presidents have stumbled into something good. Again, it's usually by accident, but I think every president since I, that I can remember has done at least some good. And they've usually done quite a bit that's bad. So with respect to people such, I, I, I mean, Ron Paul, I've known Dr. Paul for nearly 40 years. I was at the Gold Standard Conference in Capitol Hill in 1983, where Dr. Paul took an interest in a young man from Virginia, invited me up to the, to the, to the Capitol, first time I'd ever been in the Capitol. I mean, he could not have been more gracious. When he was the presidential candidate for the LP, I brought him to speak at the University of Virginia, brought him back to speak 10 years later. Um, we're not close friends, we've never been close friends because we just don't run in the same circles. But he's somebody for whom I have tremendous respect. I disagree with him on some issues. Then again, I disagree with damn near everybody on some issues. Um, I think that his son, Rand Paul, again, is occasionally right, even a broken clock is right twice a day. And, and Rand is better than, he's, he's better than a lot of. That's not saying very much, by the way. In fact, that's saying almost nothing. So I, I, my hope is that the sort of nationalist, populist effort that you're seeing in the Republican Party, my hope is that it will have the beneficial effect of causing people to ask questions about big government. And maybe we, the libertarians, can give people a really good coherent reason why they should oppose overly large, overly expensive, overly intrusive government. But that means we've got to be out there working hard. So I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, uh, one thing, by the way, uh, Donald Trump did something fascinating my opinion. He fundamentally changed both the Democratic and Republican parties. 
because he attracted a lot of conservative Democrats to the Republicans, which left the more progressive elements now to run the Democratic Party. So he ended up fundamentally changing both parties, which is actually a pretty, it's in some ways a very impressive accomplishment. Um, so anyway, further questions or comments? We can come back to the one that you asked, or we, we've, questions, comments, arguments? Okay. Going back to, to your question about, uh, by the way, I, I, I met Ms. McArdle at the National Convention in Reno very, very briefly. I had not, I had not met her previously. She was evidently uh, the head of the Los Angeles County uh, LP. Um, so far as, as chair, she seems to be doing uh, an okay job. I, I am concerned very much about the LNC now getting more and more involved in various state party battles because it's 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 interesting that the arguments that were used I, I won't I won't go deeply into this if, if you're interested you can talk to me offline in 2011 one faction of the Libertarian Party of Oregon essentially rewrote their constitution at, at, in a meeting where they had no power to rewrite the Constitution. They basically gave themselves power to stay in office. The Libertarian National Committee's Executive Committee had two different groups of, of people coming to us and saying, we are the Libertarian Party of Oregon, we're the rightful leaders. The Executive Committee, I mean, you, 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 have to, you have to identify who are the right people, who are the people who get the data to, so the Executive Committee between our, our national committee meeting, we voted to recognize one group because we thought they had the stronger claim. The judicial committee, in what I think was a truly horrible decision, not so much the result, but the reasoning was just dreadful, reversed the LNC's decision. Interestingly enough now, the LNC seems to be endorsing the position that that the LNC executive committee took in, in 2011, and one of the people, the national secretary, Ms. Harlow's, is making an argument that is exactly the opposite of the argument she made involved with the Oregon situation in 2011. And it's and in fact, one of the judicial committee people at the last term, Mary Ruart, who's a good friend of mine, basically ruled. I guess it was the case of Delaware, and then the case of Massachusetts in a way that was completely the opposite of what she argued for in the Oregon case in 2011. Which, I have to wonder, are we, do we have people who are making decisions based upon who's raising the issue as opposed to what the principles are? So I am concerned this, this issue, I don't know the particulars of what's going on in Idaho or New Mexico, but it looks like the LNC is now with, in my opinion, reckless abandon, getting involved in issues that really may be appropriately just the state issues under our bylaws. So anyway, that, that's, that's an aside. Your question was, essentially Ms. McCardle evidently made the comment that there was sort of a takeover in the late 90s. Okay. I don't remember. There has been for many years arguments based, and of course it depends upon <laughs> What time, at, at what time, what date that they're making the argument? There was for many years an argument made by people who consider themselves more liberal, coming from a more contemporary liberal position, that the Libertarian Party's 
outreach is to people who come from a conservative background. The idea, the, the suggestion was that in terms of the mailing list we're looking at, in terms of our messaging, in terms of you know what events we're participating in when we send people to, to staff information tables, that there was a very strong pronounced effort to bring people of a conservative disposition into the party. And there was, there was some truth to that. And I, I'll, I'll tell you frankly why I think that, that happened. It's because a lot of these organizations to whom we were reaching had shown interest in the Libertarian Party, the Libertarian movement. So I think there was just a natural orientation to reach out to people who, for whom there was evidence that we might be able to, we might be able to reel them in. Over the last, oh, I'd say basically from about 2005 through really about 2018, 2020, there was a concerted effort on, on the part of people who viewed themselves as more liberal to try to reverse that, to try to reach out more on issues that would be perhaps ones that would naturally resonate among people who identify as liberals. And Nick Sarwark, who was our chair for three terms, Nick is very much in that direction. Now I've known Nick. I I, he, I was I was national chair. He was he was a very young state chair in Maryland. So I've known Nick for a long time. Uh, I think I, I think Nick actually went overboard trying to reach out to people who identify as liberal or progressive. That, by the way, is purely an issue of of of, of well, I guess it's both strategy and tactics. I didn't hold it against him in the sense I thought he was doing something out, completely out of bounds. I just didn't think it was going it was going to pay off. I assumed that what Ms. McCardle was talking about was that for for a few years you did have people in 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 office, basically national chair and the like, who clearly did favor more outreach to, if you will, to use the contemporary terms, the political left. That I think is true. The Mises Caucus from what I understand, was formed basically as a reaction to what they saw as undue emphasis on re outreach to liberal progressive. There was also, I think there was a cultural issue because, frankly, a lot of the battles that, that are taking place in society are really cultural battles. Issues about, for example, um, uh, with respect to, you know, can someone who considers himself or herself transgender, what bathroom can you use? You know, affirmative action laws, uh, anti-discrimination laws. There are some libertarians who are more sympathetic to those, to those laws. I will point out, I personally think one of the things that is really unfortunate about what government has done is that with a lot of its rules and laws basically trying to promote particularly affirmative action, it actually has it has tended to drive a wedge in society. It actually has, has hurt society. It's actually made enemies of people who ought to be on the same side. I think we can all we, we all want to see people get a fair shake. Unfortunately, the the rules that are now being enforced, and by the way, as an academic, if you want to if you have nothing better to do and I can't ever imagine you're having a day where you didn't have something better to do. I'll, I'll buy you a beer and I'll cry in it about what's going on in the modern university and, and the, the incredible ways in which people are basically being discriminated against on the basis of color. If you happen to be, frankly, a, a Caucasian. Don't get me started on that. I, I, haven't, I actually haven't, that, that hasn't hit me, but 
If you look at what goes on in terms of hiring at, at, at most universities, I mean, in my opinion, it clearly violates the, the, well, it violates the Civil Rights Act. And in fact, we are going to have a very important, two important Supreme Court decisions coming down the line next term involving Harvard University and the University of North Carolina system about the, the about affirmative action. So anyway, getting back to getting back to your point, I think Ms. McArdle and the Mises caucus, she's a member of the Mises caucus, I understand. I think that they did have a, a reasonable point that perhaps people who are in positions of responsibility, um, particularly the chair and the executive director, were trying to orient the LP toward outreach toward a more liberal group. You know, sometimes, you know, sometimes that's what you need. You actually, you, you, we, we should be reaching out to everybody because liber libertarian ideas should appeal very, very broadly. So I, I can understand why perhaps at a certain time you might find people on a particular issue, you might feel that now's a good time to reach out to that particular community or that particular perspective. Um, but I think over, over the long haul, you want to reach out to everybody. You don't want to be identified as being liberal or conservative, right or left. You want to be identified as libertarian. So, I, I don't, does that come anywhere close to answering your question? It does, yeah. And uh, in, in terms of like what she was calling the thing of her, um, it, it seems to be like very uh, like in party kind of things. Uh, so perhaps I'm not the best one to elaborate on exactly what she meant. Uh, but if you want, like after I can like send you the sure. Podcast. Well, I will. I will say this, and I, I I don't mind. I I am not associated with any caucus. When I was national chair, I had to, I was the chair for everybody. It's my job to represent everybody who's a party member. Now, I, I look, I have my opinions. My knee jerks violently at all manner of stimuli. But in my position as chair and then as a member of the LNC, I have a responsibility to represent the party, not just my particular group. I am concerned, and I, I don't mind I don't mind saying it. Right now, on the LNC, the LNC is overwhelmingly made up of people who are part of one particular group. I think that's not a good idea because I don't see a lot of what I would consider to be constructive criticism of ideas being generated. Now, maybe that's unfair. Maybe I'm just not seeing it. I think that some of the criticisms of the Mises Caucus, I think, frankly, are very unfair. These are coming from people who just, they make these assertions. And I have never liked the technique known as proof by assertion. I find that rather unappealing. I don't think that's a very good argumentative technique. Simply asserting something's true. You know, show me, show me the evidence. And I think a lot of the stuff that accuses, um, you know, some of the Mises Caucus people of being, you know, racist or homophobic or something, I haven't seen a lot of evidence for that. Some people, yes, but that you know, you don't want to indict a whole group of people by virtue of you know a couple of people over there. So a lot of the criticisms I think of the Beast's Caucus, I frankly have found unfair. <coughs> Maybe they're true, but they haven't been justified to me. And I'm willing, I'm willing to see what happens. Um, I will say one thing, and this is another, this is another criticism of what happened in Reno. I attended the first LNC meeting of the new of the new LNC. There are, only, there, there are only two or three people on the LNC 
who actually have any real experience and not having institutional memory. You had, at the end of the 2020 convention, I chose not to run for re-election because, frankly, my faculty duties have increased at UVA. Bill Redpath was not elected as an at-large. Bill Redpath was two-term national chair, had, had been in the party for something like 35 years. The, Mr. Mr. Ballot Access, he was not re-elected. Alicia Matson was not re-elected. Sam Goldstein was not re-elected. You had an enormous amount of institutional memory that's just gone. Well, if you if you've ever been on the LNC, you you would realize institutional memory is very useful. And I also haven't noticed any, as far as I can tell. The people currently on the LNC don't seem to be interested in reaching out to people who actually do have that institutional knowledge. So we'll see. I, I, I'm hoping that we are approaching a point where there are going to be lots and lots of people who are finally going to say, Democrats, pooh, Republicans, pooh, Libertarians. So, you know, <laughs> maybe we're getting close. Um, I will note, by the way, if you'd asked me when the Soviet Union was going to collapse, I would never have predicted it would have been 1989. So, don't ask me for political advice as to when things are going to, we're going to see momentous change, because I don't necessarily have the best track record of predicting that. Again, did that come anywhere close to <laughs> Sure. By the way, um, my email address is jwlark, jwlark, at virginia.edu. If I can be of any help to you in terms of your efforts, don't hesitate to get in touch with me. As I tell my friends, consider me like a pack mule, strong back, weak mind. If I can be of help to you, I'm ha I mean, doing favors for my fellow libertarians is, is arguably my favorite indoor sport. So let me know what I can do to be of assistance. Again, I, it's delightful to come down and see you guys again. I just, I've got a lot. Of, I've got a lot of friends here, um, and one of the things, one of the nice things about having the opportunity to, to speak to libertarian groups is, I realize I'm in the presence of heroes, paladins of liberty, and it's 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 just a great honor and a great pleasure to be here. So thank you. Thanks for the tea. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I've, I've learned to rotate my wrist like this. All right, kids, there you go. That was Dr. James Lark speaking to the Roanoke Valley Libertarians. If you're ever in the Roanoke, Virginia area on the second Wednesday of the month, please come to Corn Beef and Company and join the Roanoke Valley Libertarians because we would love to see you there. And, um, you know, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, please give us a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. Go to YouTube, go to Rumble, click the subscribe button, hit the notification bell, you know, like and share the videos. And you can follow us on Twitter at WeAreMaxLib. So my friends, the time has come for us to say goodbye for this week. It's been fun. And I hope to see you back here next week. And if not, please be safe, be free, and stay positive. Have a good week. Later.